another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spirit here with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, dictating from my home office in Arlington, Texas, which has become the norm now. Today is going to be episode 350. Kind of a landmark episode, I guess, whenever you cross a 50 or a 100. So episode 350, we're going to talk today about becoming a rifleman. This is a subject I've talked about before. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more today. I'm going to talk to you about some things that you can do to improve uh, not just your marksmanship, but your rifle craft. I find those to be two very different things. I'm going to tell you a little bit more than I have in the past about my upcoming ebook, uh, Mastering the 22 Rifle, but this is not going to be an infomercial for that product, specifically because you couldn't buy it yet if you want to. It's not done yet. So uh, we're going to be doing a practical show like we do all the time about rifle craft, about how it fits into American history, and about how I see it as being important for the prepper Beyond defense, uh, far beyond defense, is what we're going to be talking about today. Before we do that, though, we do some ha- have some housekeeping to take care of. First of all, sponsor of the day, number one, MERS-radio.com. Sometimes people get confused with domain names. I recommend you go to thesurvivalpodcast.com, our website, to, to link up with our sponsors. They're all in little banners on the right-hand margin of the site. Um, MERS Radio is something really unique. Uh, it's something I invested in myself uh, a couple months ago. I purchased two sensors, two handhelds, and a base station. Um, we'll be taking the handhelds and the base station with us to Arkansas to play around with them. Up, Actually, we're going to just take the handhelds. We're going to leave the base station here so my son has it uh, to work with the sensors. We're going to play around with the handhelds up there a little bit uh, and see what kind of range we get on our property. And I bet we can cover our entire property with them, which will be a good secondary communication once we're there permanently. It will also let us know if the uh, sensors will work out to the peripheral regions of our property well. Uh, what I like about MERS is it's not a substitute for ham, folks. It's really not. What it does do, though, is it allows you to have a little bit more privacy than the, the, the stuff you buy from, uh, you know, like Academy or, or whatnot. Um, and it allows you to combine security and communications together because of the sensor aspect. And what these sensors do is you put them out in an area and you set them to, to hit the, you know, range that you want them to hit. And when somebody crosses that sensor, it sends an alert to any radio tuned to that frequency that says something like alert sector 1, alert sector 2, 3, or 4, and you can have up to four sectors. Well, you can even expand its capability because what you can do, let's say you have a group of sheds and you want to cover all of those four sheds, but you consider that to be sector 2. You could set three, if you had three sheds, three sensors around the entrance points of those three sheds, set them all to sector two, and when the, the alert goes off, you'll hear let's alert sector two. Now, you wouldn't know exactly. What you will know, though, is that you've got some type of movement going on around that group of sheds. So that can give you greater coverage still sticking with just four sectors. So I really like this equipment. I suggest you check it out. It's inexpensive, and it goes a long way uh, to help you with communications and security both. Next sponsor today, Backyard Food Production. And uh, check out their DVD. And, uh, I mean, it's really amazing to me. I just watched it again last night, and I still was learning new things. It's... um. 
it's a fundamental to me now at this point as I learn about sustainable growing and permaculture and producing your own food that the best thing you can do is look at as many systems that have been built by others as possible so you can break down the component parts and put them together and build your own system that accounts for your own needs on your own property. And uh, I think this DVD will do a lot to help you there. Also remember, Backyard Food Production is running three um, workshops, one in January, one in February, one in March. I will be at two, probably all three of them. So if you're in anywhere near the Texas area, you want to come down there and learn about primitive hunting and trapping, uh, come do that. I think it'll be a great experience. I'm looking forward to it and meeting some of you guys. All right, next up on the plate, uh, let's uh, knock out the rest of everything quickly today. Go to our gear shop, buy stuff from the gear shop, show your pride in the survival podcast, hook up with us on YouTube, join our forum, and last but not least, if you think the show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members and over $200 in value and growing on day one for a contribution of $5 a month or $50 a year. That's a pretty awesome return of investment. Let's rock on with the show. Let's start talking about being a rifleman and what that means to me. Let's start off with, I think, one of the most confused concepts in rifle shooting. I think people tend to confuse marksmanship with being a rifleman. Marksmanship means you can shoot to a certain level. It might be really good, it might be sufficient, it might be sort of good, it might be exceptional, but marksmanship is simply a measure of what type of skill you have with the rifle and hitting a target. The problem is that marksmanship is generally judged when you're shooting at targets of fixed distances, um, and it's compared then to other shooters' abilities uh, shooting at the same distances from the same position. So marksmanship might be judged by how well you can shoot a open-sided rifle at 100 yards from the prone position. Uh, marksmanship might also be judged at how well you can shoot uh, a 50-meter target offhand from a standing position, offhand with no support, uh, or seated, or a, a variety of ways. And I think the problem for most shooters in today's day and age, where it's no longer real easy to just throw the guns in the truck and drive a couple miles out somewhere safe and just shoot. I think most people today, um, especially in the more suburban and urban areas, when you shoot, you go to gun ranges. And if you're shooting a rifle, uh, you go to a, uh, the rifle range portion of the gun range, and they have all these nice benches, and everybody sits down, and they have targets exactly 100 yards away that you go down there and staple up paper targets to, and you sit there and you make holes in the targets. And that is a form of marksmanship. Now, making this worse, there's people that are hunters, um, and I'm not putting down this method of hunting. It's very popular in the South. It was very foreign to me when I came here from the Northeast, from Pennsylvania. I, I looked at this and went, you would go to jail so fast in Pennsylvania if you did this. Um, but I understand why it's done here. But there's a, there's a rifle craft that's missing in this way. And this is the deer hunter in Texas and throughout the South. They have a little box blind, 150, maybe 100 yards, sometimes 75 yards, at some fixed distance from a deer feeder. And then they have a deer feeder that goes off at regular intervals and drops food on the ground, probably once in the morning, once midday, and once in the evening. Deer feeder goes off, deer come in looking for a feed, the guy picks out a deer, takes a rest sitting in a chair inside the box blind, on the windowsill, almost exactly like he's out at the rifle range, picks out a deer, drops the hammer, boom, 
deer goes down, guy maybe hunts for 15 years of his life, bags his buck every year, maybe if he's in a state that allows multiple harvest, couple does. Guy might have hunted for 20 years and never missed a deer. He thinks he's a rifleman. He might be, but he probably isn't. If that's the extent of his hunting, that is no different than going to the rifle range, sitting there at a bench, and knocking a hole through a paper target. In fact, most people at 100 yards, if they're not grouping about the size of a, a baseball, um, are, are not happy with their results. But if you can group the size of uh, a paper plate, which most people will be very unhappy with, and you should, shooting off a bench, you're not going to have any trouble if you pick the right spot, dead center long shot on a deer, and take that shot. You're always going to end up killing that deer with that type of a pattern. So that's not being a rifleman. That's having a certain proficiency as a marksman, and enough of a cool head, when the shot actually counts for something, you're shooting at something living, to be able to make the shot the same way which is kind of the first step in moving toward being a rifleman. To me, a rifleman is a person that when they pick up a rifle, it's a rifle that they've trained with, hunted with, shot with, and practiced with over and over and over again. If you handed them the same make and model rifle, but it wasn't theirs, they would know something was up. There, you know the, the old TV shows that we that they used to do kind of as jokes? Sitcoms used to do this all the time. The kid's hamster or goldfish died or whatever, and like the adult was like didn't want to tell them that it died, so they would go out and find one that looked just like it, put the fish in the bowl or the hamster in the cage. No one would ever, ever notice that there was a difference. You know, the hamster had a little white dot. He finds one little white dot. Goldfish is a plain orange, everyday goldfish. Throws it in there, kid comes home, looks at it, goes, that's not Tommy. That's not my fish. That's not my hamster. The kid knows. Because it's more important to the kid. And it's, 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 it's true. If you try to pull that on a little kid, if they actually uh, really enjoy their pet, you're not going to do it. They're going to know there's subtle differences that that kid will know. And there's subtle differences when you pick up a rifle that the rifleman will know. A, a, a true rifleman would be able to pick up the rifle. Don't do this in a way that would compromise your safety. But if it has a magazine uh, in it or it has an internal loading feature, would know that the rifle's loaded or unloaded because the weight will change. That's that's a true rifleman, and that's really, really special. And I don't think many people ever get there. I can't say that I'm fully there myself, but I do. I've actually played around with that, and I've been able to determine at times when the rifle's loaded and unloaded, even with just as few as three shells, and three twenty-two shells don't weigh much. And we wanted to see how far down we could go where I could make a difference, and I couldn't always do it, but it was kind of cool. It was something that my kid did one time, just for the kicks. But every rifle, even the exact same make and model, has ways that the stock is just a little bit different. It's not exactly the same. It feels different. There's ways that after shooting it for years and years, your hands wear the forearm, they wear the pistol grip, they wear the the, 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 uh, the side of the trigger, they wear the bolt if it's a bolt action, they wear the slide if it's a slide action, and it wears a certain way, and that's your rifle and you know it. And that's one part, that's just one part. And in some ways that's the easy part of being a rifleman, because if you use the same weapon all the time, that happens naturally. Now the other thing to me that separates the rifleman from the person who's just the marksman, the person that has rifle craft mastered, is 
the ability to go out with a weapon and use it to its potential. And that potential will change based on the weapon itself. So if I have a 22 long rifle with a four power fixed scope, which I think is the perfect training rifle, I think that is, I'm going to talk in a minute about scopes versus iron sights, and I believe you should start with iron sights, but when it comes to mastering the rifle, a 22 with a fixed four power and a good sling and a set of binoculars and chasing squirrels in the woods will turn you into a master. It will happen because you will have to become that. But we have to take a look at that 22 long rifle and go, there are things that can be done with this weapon that exceed reasonable expectations. Give me a couple shots to get the windage down. Put a big coffee can 200 yards away, which is way beyond what you should be doing with a 22, and I'll drop rounds into that coffee can uh, from a prone position every single time and quite a few times from a seated resting position. But that's not the weapon's capability. That is theatrics. That is exhibition shooting. It's cool. It's fun to push your capabilities that way. And to me, doing those things are a lot like, I will not take a shot at a deer with a bow and arrow at 40 yards. I won't do it. It's beyond my comfort level with reasonably being sure that I'm going to kill, not cripple a deer. It's an ethical decision. But I'll practice at 40 yards day and night because if I practice at 40 and I get really good at 40, when I take a 20-yard shot... It's much easier to make. So that's how I see these things. If I'm going to go around once in a while when I get a big open field I can play around with and hit hit cans at 200 yards with a 22, that's because it's maximum real range, especially in real hunting situations, is about 100 yards. So the master of the 22 can go out in the woodlands or in the rabbit fields or hunting ground squirrels or groundhogs or gophers or whatever and use that weapon effectively, and with a high percentage of shots completed, cleanly take game at the maximum distance that that gun is expected to perform at. Again, with the 22, we're talking 100 yards. We move into something like a 308. We have an expectation now of somewhere between 300 and 400 meters. Yes, I know, maximum effective range in the military is out past 500 meters. Right? I understand that. It's out around, I believe, 800. I don't remember. So nobody slew me over this. I think it's around 800 meters. But it's a sporting weapon. Shooting at a big game animal that has an entirely different profile than a human being that the sniper in the military is shooting at. Right? It has, for most shooters, a range of 300 meters. Now, you want to push it to five, that's great if you can do that. But if you can routinely, cleanly take game anywhere between 25 meters to 300 meters with a 308, a 306, a 270, anything like that, then I consider you to be very proficient and to be a rifleman with that caliber, to be a master of that caliber. Now, masters come in different degrees, right? Just like martial arts. I might have a master that's a second-degree black belt, been practicing for five years, He's a master of his art. And he'll have the title in, in many martial arts of master. But the guy that's been practicing for 20 years, that's an 8th degree or 8th dawn or whatever they call it in that particular art, obviously has a degree of proficiency that far exceeds a master that would be junior to him. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about mastering your rifle. Reasonable ranges and being able to compensate. Here's the thing. Sure. You can take that 308. You have to get, we go back to marksmanship here. Fixed knowledge of the distance. 500 meters. 
solid rest, know the wind speed, know the temperature, all the things that snipers learn to make one shot, one kill every time. Have the time to, to, to take that information in, compute it, and make the shot based on that knowledge. Right? What I'm talking about is coming up on top of a hilltop, looking down at an elk, and realizing we're talking somewhere between 260, 270 yards without a laser rangefinder to tell us exactly what that is. Feel the wind, know the wind, take the shot, make the shot every time. Now, I'm not saying our snipers and our military can't do that. They most certainly can. But they have a skill set beyond what is generally possible for the person that doesn't live that life and do it every single day. Because that's the other limitation that modern Americans have. We can't go shoot every single day. Some of us are lucky and we can, but we can't shoot the way they do every single day. I don't know anybody, except maybe if you have a ranch out in Wyoming somewhere, that can go out and routinely shoot centerfire rifles at 500 meters and beyond. Which these guys, that's their, that's their job. That's what they're paid to do. The American rifleman was not built around the concept of being a soldier. He was built around the concept of being able to feed his family and defend his family from whatever might be the threat, whether it was a bear trying to break into the cabin at night or redcoats landing on the shore, did not matter. But the time that the rifle was used for defense would have been 1% of the time that the rifle was used. The other 99%, the rifle was used to feed. Or if it was being used for defense, it was used for defense on things like bears and mountain lions or rabid dogs or what have you or to protect crops. This is what made the American rifleman special. This is what made the American rifleman unique. And the fact that there were so many people that had this skill was a huge deterrent to invasion by any foreign power. Because a place where everybody gets their deer rifle, lines up and waits for you to come to shore, is not a good place to go do a landing. Now, today we have new types of warfare that didn't exist in the 1800s. We have aircraft, we have mechanized, we have, we have missiles and rockets, and we have, you know, very, very high capable artillery that mitigates that to a degree, but sooner or later you gotta put boots on the ground. And the American rifleman, in my opinion, is still a deterrent to that. But it still goes back to the woods. It still goes back to the grasslands. It still goes back to the prairie. It goes back to the young kid that's handed a Ruger 1022, Couple boxes of shells, and it's told by the ranch ranch owner, "Hey, boy, you know what? Them prairie dogs are getting to be a little bit too populated. Go wipe some of them out for me." It goes back to the young man that picks up his twenty-two and goes out and comes home with six squirrels that go in the stew pot tomorrow night. That's where it really comes from. So, how do you gain that proficiency in today's world? How do you go out and become that kind of rifleman today if you live in a city with two, three, four, five, six million people in it? That's why I'm a fan of the 22. Because no matter where you live, odds are you can drive an hour to two hours maximum and find a place where it's legal and safe for you to discharge 22. And if you can shoot walnuts at 75 yards with a 22, 
You can shoot deer at 300 yards with a 308. You might need to learn that weapon the way you know the 22. You might have to fine-tune your knowledge. You might have to learn things about the trajectory, which is the flight path of the bullet. How high is it at 100 yards? How low is it at 300 yards? What's your hold of? You might have to learn those things. But the fundamental skills, the trigger control, the vision, the target acquisition skills, these things, if you learn those with a 22, you can put them into practice with anything else. Now, I'm a huge fan of scopes in the right situations. Again, my preference for the 22 rifle is a fixed four power scope. I'll talk about why that is in just a second as well. But more importantly to me is that we take a new shooter and we train them to shoot with iron sights. And that is for a variety of reasons, but the most fundamental of them is I have watched so many shooters, even the guy that goes to the deer blind every year and takes his deer and has done it for 20 years, that have terrible shooting form. There's no way they're ever going to become a master of a rifle with the form that they have. And I blame the telescopic scope for the majority of failure of form in modern shooters. I think most modern shooters, the first rifle they ever shoot anymore, has a scope on it. If you're teaching a young man or a young woman to shoot, rip the scope off the gun. Until they can put in a fist-sized group at 25 yards, standing offhand, with iron sights, which is very doable, they don't get a scope. If the young man is 7, he doesn't get a scope until he can do it. If the young man is 70, he doesn't get a scope until he can do that. Don't cry to me about how your eyes ain't what they used to be. Get some glasses, get some contact. We're talking 25 yards here. 25, if you really have vision problems that are that bad, I don't think a scope's going to fix them. Back it up to 20 yards. Start the kiddo at 15. Get that fist size group. Move them to 20. Get that fist size group. Move them to 25. Get that fist size group. Get that form right. Now we can put a scope on. What happens with a scope is people don't understand how to use them. So instead of bringing the scope to the eye line and bringing the rifle up to acquire the target, they bring the head down to the scope. And you see people shooting with their heads way leaned over on the stock. Right? Shoot a 3006 that way with some hot loads in it. It'll break your cheekbone, or at least it'll hurt a lot. Shoot a 300 Magnum that way, and you might end up with a, with a cross mark in your head where the scope hits you and a really bruised cheek, and you'll be really uncomfortable. Get the form right, and we can shoot these higher calibers, hot-loaded 06s, even up into the 300 Magnums. Small-frame shooters can shoot them without any real problems, if they get the form right. When you shoot an iron-sided weapon, it's much easier to teach proper form to someone that doesn't know it yet. Once it's known, it's easy from there. So what is proper form? Difficult to do in an audio. That's why I'm doing the book with all the pictures in it. But the proper form, when we're shooting offhand, standing, your hip should be about 45 degrees to your target, not 90. I see people all the time shooting. They have their body turned, you know, so you face a wall, and you turn 90 degrees and face another wall with your feet planted. You're 90 degrees like that. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from Revolutionary War times and back. When, when people were standing in formation shooting musket balls at each other, reducing the size of the target area on a human being. And actually with a musket ball, getting some shielding from the vitals with the forearm. That's where that came from. 
Well, if you're not shooting a brown best musket at somebody that's shooting back at you with a Kentucky rifle, put your hips 45 degrees to the target. Put your hands on your hips, point your fingers forward like you have two little six guns, like you were when you were a kid, like you're drawn, but keep your hands touching your hips. They should form a line about 45 degrees to your target. Look out in the distance. Pick your target. Right? Pick your target. Lock. Keep your head straight, your back straight, your neck straight, your shoulders square on the target, turned off. Imagine a steel rod connecting the target to your shooting eye. Your head cannot move. If you move, you'll tear your eye out. Bring the rifle and its sights into that target line straight up. I, I did a video on this for members brigade members. You become an MSB member, you can watch this video. It's perfectly explained with a pistol. You never see a person with a pistol bring the pistol up to chest height and then bring their head down to the pistol. But you see people bring a rifle up to just about collarbone height and then bring their head down. It's completely wrong. It stresses the body. It ruins form. Scopes cause this. That's why you start with iron sights. Once you get form right and you get a reasonable level of proficiency with iron sights, you put a scope on a weapon for somebody, they're able to shoot it much, much better. Now, why a four-power scope for a twenty-two rifle? Why would we do such a thing? Why not a nine-power scope? I mean, three to nines are dirt cheap, right? They're mass-produced. They're easy to get. You can buy a cheap scope and throw it on a twenty-two. It has almost no recoil. The scope's going to last. It's going to be okay. Why don't we put a three to nine on the on the on the twenty-two? We could drop down one power less, and we could bring them in close when they're way out there. Because the twenty-two is a hundred-yard weapon. There's no way out there. It doesn't exist. There's no bringing them in. We're talking about a round that begins to lose its power, its energy, and its ability to, to effectively kill game massively past 100 yards. It begins to take a rainbow trajectory past 100 yards. If you can't hit a squirrel in the head at 75 yards with a 4-power scope, a 16-power scope will change nothing. So fundamental reality, it doesn't give you anything. So why the added weight? and the added potential for problems. The other thing is, it's inevitable that you're going to be playing around with your scope, end up with it on 9 power, and see a jackrabbit at 15 yards, put the scope up, see a giant ear, and by the time you realize what you've done wrong, he lives another day. That's going to happen. We remove that potential for failure. I am not against variable power scopes. I have a 3 to 9 on my 308. It belongs on my 308. It does not belong on a 22. This is for a variety of reasons. We're talking about a short-range weapon here. So what we're talking about with the four-power scope is a wide field of view, where when we have something that's higher power, we have a narrow field of view, especially at shorter ranges. What that means is if I have a four-power scope and I'm looking 25 yards away, I can see the target and I can see a broad area around it, which means if I don't immediately acquire the target as I should, I probably still have the target in my scope. Moving then the reticle to the target is easy. If I have a high-power scope and I'm a few inches off of my target, I don't see my target in the scope. If I don't see my target in the scope, I don't know what direction I'm off with the scope or the rifle, and I don't know which direction to move to acquire the target properly. It slows down my target acquisition. And this is where you see shooters, I can't find it, I can't find it. They look over, they look back down, right? And we see this on the on the hunting channels, like uh, the outdoor channel. You see a guy sitting in a box blind. Where is he? Looking for, like these new hunters, they put these big giant scopes in their hands. Way excessive of what's necessary. And they can't find what they're looking for. Another fundamental of rifle marksmanship, if you're, your rifle craft, if you're going to put a scope on a weapon, is have the scope at the right distance. 
That's why you learn to shoot with iron sights in proper form first. Once you know what that is, when you're adjusting your scope, you set it in its rings, you leave it loose so it can slide forward and backward. Okay? Close your eyes, bring the rifle up, open your eyes. Alright, if the scope's not clear, it's too far or too close to your eye at that point. Adjust it until you can bring the rifle up to a natural position and you already have a clear scope. If you do that, your shooting with scoped rifles will vastly improve overnight. It is that simple. We don't learn these fundamentals anymore because we walk around with the scope as a crutch. The scope is not to be a crutch. It's not supposed to make a lousy marksman into a decent marksman. It's supposed to make a, a good marksman into an exceptional marksman. It's supposed to extend your ability. So if your ability sucks and we extend your ability with a scope, we extend your ability to suck further. That's it. If we get you proficient and then we put a scope on it, we extend proficiency. Does that make sense? The other problem with over-magnification in scopes, this one is huge. This one is massive is that scopes don't just magnify what you see, they magnify movement. This is in my book, I talk about this in my book. When I was a young kid, I was probably 16 years old, 15 years old, I might have been 14 years old, I don't remember exactly, but I took some of my lawn mowing money that I used to make, and I went out and bought a telescope. And me and a buddy were out in the back of our house, and it was really dark there, and you could see the night sky, unlike in the city. And we were looking at the moon, it was about a half of, half of a moon that night, and we were looking at, and it was a cool telescope, and we are looking at the craters, and you could see rays of, of the moon dust coming out of the craters where the explosion happened. You could see boulders and rocks in the craters. It was cool. Right? And the, the moon basically filled the entire scope. And we were sitting there, you know, like young teenagers do, shooting the breeze, talking about girls, things like that. And we'd look back, and the moon was gone, and we'd have to find it again. And we'd keep having to find it again. So my dad comes out, and we're like, Dad, look, if you look in the scope, you can actually see the moon move. We thought this was like, we discovered something. We thought we were like Einstein's or something, right? And he goes, okay, what power is the scope? So it's 125 power. <clears throat> he says, well, son, if you have 125 times magnification, the moon's moving right now. It's just hard to perceive because it's so far away. When you look at it in the scope, the moon is moving at least relative to the way you normally see it. Sorry about the pause there. I hit the mute button on the mic. Anyway, what he said was, when you look through this 125 power scope, and you're looking at the moon, the moon's already moving, and now it appears to move 125 times faster. So moving the, 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 the relatively short distance out of the scope's view happens 125 times faster than if you just held up your, 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 your finger and made a little ring and looked at it. Because you're magnifying movement, because you're magnifying everything that you visually perceive. So when you take a very high power scope, let's say a 12 power scope, and you're looking down the target line at, let's say, a relatively short distance, something you have no business being with 16 power for, 75 yards. Every movement you make of the rifle, every little twitch, causes that reticle to dance. And that's why when you look through a high-power scope at a short target, you seem like, I can't stay still. Now, the reality is, you're, if, you're, if you're doing good form, you're plenty still enough to make the shot, but what it does mentally is it ruins the confidence of the shooter. The shooter sees this dancing reticle, and they, that's the people you say, I can't, I can't hold it still, I can't hold it still, right? That's what that is. 
That's exactly what that is. 75 yards shooting at a deer, give the guy iron sights, he puts them up, they look rock solid because they magnify their movement exactly zero times. Bam, dead deer. Give them a high-powered scope, that distance. A lot of times, the guy will have a hard time making a shot. Sounds crazy, but it's true. I've seen it. So, scopes have a purpose. They extend our ability to perceive the target, to find the target. When we start talking about shooting a squirrel, and we got a squirrel, say, 45 yards away in the woods, and he's on a gray oak tree in a, in a Y-notch looking at us, and he's a gray squirrel, so he's mostly gray, a little bit of brown on him. We see his tail shaking a bit, and we can perceive him with our naked eye. We can put up our binoculars, and we can see him, and you need binoculars if you're going to be a rifleman. And we perceive, there he is, but when we bring that iron sights up, we can't tell where the head is. That's our kill shot. We can't see that well. Most of us can't. I don't have the eyes for it anyway. But we put a little four-power scope on there, and now I see that little walnut-sized head. Now I've got my target. Now I have a much more uh, reasonable chance to take my shot. I've now taken the weapon, and I've made it capable of shooting within the range that I should expect it to be able to shoot in to do its job, to kill small game. That's what a twenty two is for. It is not for shooting deer. Survival situation behind the ear, I understand. It'll work. Okay, It absolutely will. Not every time. That's why it's not used as a hunting tool. But it will work. It is it is capable of doing that if necessary. But its day-to-day job is fox down in size. That's what it's for. With with very proficient shooting on, on larger animals. You shoot a groundhog in the chest of the twenty two, he's probably going down a hole. He'll probably die in that hole, but he's going down the hole. You shoot him in the stomach, you've just sentenced an animal to a miserable, horrible, long-term, slow, agonizing death. You shoot him in the head, he drops where he sits. And groundhog's actually pretty good eating, folks. I know some of you think I'm crazy. But if the shit hit the fan, you'll eat a groundhog. I used to go shoot groundhogs for farmers all the time in Pennsylvania. It's how I got permission to hunt on their, on their farms. It wasn't like that here where everybody had a deer lease. I would just drive around. Once I got 16 and got a car, man, I'd drive around the farmlands. And every farm that I would drive by, I'd stop on the side of the road with my, my binoculars, and I'd look, and if I saw a groundhog, I'd go right to that farmhouse. I'd go, Mr. Farmer, there's a uh, groundhog out in your, your field there. It looks like a pretty safe place to shoot. Would it be okay if I went and shot him for you? And nine times out of ten, it wasn't just, yes, you can, but, oh, will you please do that? They don't like those things. And I'd go out there and shoot him. And in the beginning, I would discard them. And I had a friend that had a wolf hybrid that he used to feed meat to. And I gave him the, the groundhogs to feed the meat to. And I decided one day, I'm going to get rid of this stigma and I'm going to try eating groundhogs. So I uh, I went out and shot a couple of them. And all I did was skin the back legs and the, and the back uh, backbone up to about the rib cage, cut that off, and pressure cooked it uh, for about 10 minutes to tenderize it a little bit, and then barbecued it on the grill. It was phenomenal. Tasted great. You want to make sure you don't get any of the material from the glands into the meat. That's the same with the deer. It was really good. I was surprised. And I had a new source of meat. It's amazing what you learn when you're a rifleman instead of a marksman. See, the rifleman is always looking, when can I get this thing in my hands and be out there doing something with it again? Riflemen love to shoot reactive targets. If they're target shooting, they want reactive targets, not paper. 
Papers for zeroing your weapon to make sure that it groups well, to make sure that it's sighted in, to say, I'm going to sight this 22 in at 25 yards, I'm going to sight this 308 in, dead on at 200 yards, and I'm going to determine how high that makes that 100. That's what paper's for. Paper's for testing marksmanship. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying, well, how good is this guy at the marksmanship fundamental of riflecraft? And setting a target up at 100 yards and go, can you shoot four minutes of angle minimum? Nothing wrong with that. But that is one-dimensional. I want to know if you can spot a cottontail 65 yards away on the edge of a field with a pair of binoculars by seeing his little brown eye and the glint that comes off his eye from the sun and the tip of his ear in the binoculars as you're scanning. Look at that and go, tough shot from here, don't really have a good place to take a rest. Stalk another 20 yards closer, using a rabbit's natural tendency to hold if he, don't th- if he doesn't think he's been spotted. So you're not really looking at him, you're not really moving toward him, you're just getting closer to him. Get into a position of a reasonable range where you can get a reasonable rest. Find that target again, because it's probably moved if it hasn't perceived you, just in its natural things, natural daily movements. Acquire the target, take the shot, and go home and eat tonight. That's riflecraft. Riflecraft is sitting around with some buddies after a couple uh, a couple hours out shooting, and having one of them say to you, "Hey, Jack, I bet you can't knock that walnut out of that tree," and being able to say to them, "You want to see that walnut come out of the tree without a hole in it?" Betting a beer on it, and hitting the point where the walnut joins the uh, the stem, and dropping the walnut straight to the ground. Did that once. See, that's not exhibition shooting. Exhibition shooting is I set the shot up. Exhibition shooting is what, and these guys are amazing shooters. I don't want to put them down. I'm not putting them down. It's just different. Byron Ferguson with a bow and arrow. Tom Knapp with the Bernelli shotgun. These are exhibition shooters. They know the shot. They do shots I could never do, but they know what they're going to do when they get set up to do it. The rifleman is the person that has the shot presented to them and makes it. Because it's necessary now. I don't care if it's in battle, and I don't care if it's out in the field collecting squirrels and rabbits. When you're in that position, it's not stationary paper. It's something that does not want to be killed and is trying to get away from you. When you look at a squirrel, we see these squirrels running around our parks and we go, Look at a cute little squirrel, who can shoot that? You know How much challenge is there in shooting a squirrel? Well, in your city park, there's probably not much of a challenge. I imagine you could get a little Crossman 22 pellet rifle, pump it up eight times, throw a pellet in there, and walk through that park and clean out squirrels like crazy, and probably fill your deep freezer with them. You could probably throw some food on the ground, they'd run up and get it, you start shooting them. You know what would happen after about a week of that? The few ones that were left, they would figure out they're being hunted. They'd figure out the game. Everything will change, even in the city park. When you go out to the woods, that squirrel already thinks that way. Everything eats a squirrel. The fox eats the squirrel. Raccoons will kill and eat squirrels. I think a lot of people don't know that. Hawks and eagles are their mortal enemy. You want to see squirrels scatter? I have them out at my, my uh, bird feeder all the time here in Arlington. And occasionally, one of like the blackbirds will come over, but he's just at the right sun angle that he casts his shadow over the squirrel. And the squirrel doesn't look up to see, is that just a blackbird? The shadow passes over that squirrel. That might be a hawk. That sucker's gone. Everything in that little creature's biology 
has evolved over thousands and thousands and thousands of years to avoid the predator. As a rifleman, you're the predator. And it's the same with the rabbit. Everything eats the rabbit. To a lesser degree, it's the same with the groundhog. They know that they're being hunted. And all small game that we hunt with a twenty-two thinks that way. Because it's intrinsic to what they are. They're prey. And when you pick that rifle up, you're a predator. That's riflemanship. That's rifle craft. And I think it's important that we reinstate that into America. Because we're losing it. As I get ready to start wrapping today's show up, because we're crossing 40 minutes now, let me talk a little bit to you right now about rifle actions when it comes to um, mastering a rifle and becoming proficient with a rifle. I am not a fan for training of semi-automatic actions. And I know people will go, oh, God, I love my Ruger 1022. I got one, I love it too. You know, I've got a semi-auto Marlin, and uh, I love that weapon too. Those two semi-autos, the Ruger, the Ruger semi-auto and the Marlin semi-auto, are the two best-selling rifles of all times. There's a reason. They're fun, they're accurate, they're efficient, and they're easy to shoot. And they're great tools. But they're also like, of twenty twos, and I don't mean this from a looks standpoint, I'm saying semi-autos in general, of twenty twos, they're the Ferraris. They have the most capability, the rapidest rate of fire, uh, the, the, generally the highest capacity capability. So you can shoot very fast and a lot of ammunition. So they have the highest level of performance capability. They're also the easiest to acquire multiple targets with because there's no reaction from the shooter required. I shoot, I move, I shoot, I move. And I'm not talking about moving like, like a soldier. I'm talking about I'm just standing here, bang. Move five inches to the right, bang. Move five inches to the right, bang, right? I don't have to do anything except pull the trigger. So I like bolts, slides, or levers above semis any day is a primary weapon for training with the rifle. That doesn't mean I don't take my 1022 out and make cans dance once in a while. It's a lot of fun. But it's a limited thing. My big problem with semi-autos with training shooters and getting them to be as proficient as they can with their weapon is they lie to themselves. And this is what I mean. You set clays up 50 yards out on a berm. Hand a kid a 22. Uh, Ruger 10-22. Bang, miss, bang, mix, bang, smack. Third shot. Three shots, two seconds. Third shot hits home, breaks the target. All happy with himself. Trying to feed yourself. That squirrel's gone. That rabbit's gone. That groundhog's gone. That Tweety bird. Because you're in a survival situation. Gone. That rat that was raiding the the, uh, the farm, gone. Now you can make a running shot, but if you can't make the seated, the seated shot, the standing still shot, or the slow moving shot, making the running shot's luck. So you threw enough lead down or you got lucky on one of them. It's not skill. And that's what happens. Is people lie to themselves about their skill and proficiency. You put ten clays up on a bank... Give somebody a semi-automatic uh, 22 with a 25-round magazine on it. By the time they're done with those 25 rounds, every clay is broken. Hand them a bolt action with a 7-round magazine. I want to see three targets left at the end of seven shots. And so does the shooter. And that's the key. When you have to break away from the target to work in action and come back to the target, you accept the miss in your mind and you realize you missed. 
This is why I actually like for training, the bolt action is the primary training weapon that I would use to train a rifleman. The rifleman's rifle, pre-64 Winchester Model 70. Could have been anything that got called the rifleman's rifle and lived for decades with that title. Sure as heck, wasn't a semi-auto. It wasn't a lever gun. It wasn't a pump action. It was a bolt action for a reason. It's a master's tool. It requires greater proficiency and greater skill to consistently use well. So if you master it, and then I take a semi-auto and put it in your hands, I again, I extend your capability. Your capability is mastery. So I extend your mastery with a greater rate of fire. If you are not proficient, and I give you a semi-automatic rifle, I extend your, your lack of proficiency. Plain and simple. And that's all there is to it. This is also why I like lever actions and I like pumps, but I, they still have too quick of a follow-up once you learn to use them properly to get the mastery component fixed. That's why I stick with bolts. I own a slew of rifles. I have a Marlin Model uh, 25 that I was given, I think I was 11 or 12 years old. It's over 25 years old. A quarter century I've carried this weapon. Quarter century. Right now it needs to go back and get fixed by Marlin because the ejector is not, the ejector is gone. The ejector fell out of it. A little tiny thing that the, the shell hits when the bolt comes back. A little pin. Right? I either get one and try to put it in there myself or send it to Marlin and they'll probably tune up the gun for me if I do that because that's how they are. If I, if I can part with it for that long. But when I pick it up, I can still shoot with it as deadly as I did 20 years ago. And you know what? When I go out on my little five acres in Arkansas and decide I want a couple squirrels, you know what I take with me? I take that gun. I've carried it for 25 years. It's performed for 25 years. Why would I take anything else? So if I get a chance to go up to uh, someplace in the Midwest and level ground squirrels, I'll take my 1022. If I want to go out to the range and have some fun and just sling some lead around, I'll take the 1022. I'll take the Model 70. In a survival situation, I have to tell you, I'd rather have the semi-auto. If I have to use it for lethal force, the, the uh, ability to put eight rounds into whatever's coming at me very, very quickly makes the 22 a lot more deadly. But you know what? When it comes to using it for its intended purpose, which is becoming more proficient as a rifleman and becoming proficient as a hunter, I'll take the little bolt gun every day, every single time. It's what I suggest you teach new shooters to shoot with, and I don't care how good you think you are. If you really want to become a master of, of rifle craft, start with a bolt action. The, the last thing I want to talk to you about is understanding the, the lack of a need to accessorize rifles. We're, we're, a lot of us that listen to the show are men. A lot of us that are deep into guns are men. Women are too. I don't mean any disrespect. I'm going to put men down here in just a second. So ladies, hold on. Um, Men, we have a natural need, it seems, to treat firearms and pickup trucks and cars like women treat a dress. We have to accessorize it. What can I add to it? What can I do to it? What can I put on top of it? Can I put a bipod on there? Can I float the, you know, all right, it's a 22. It's a 100-yard weapon. Do you know what it needs? 
once you're proficient as a shooter, it needs a fixed four power scope. It needs a good sling. I suggest a nice, thin, flexible nylon sling for sling-supported shooting, which I'm not going to talk about today. You need a good pair of binoculars. I like what are called intermediate binoculars, so they're not full-size. They're not the little, little compact ones are junk, and the big ones are too big. Anything in the middle is an intermediate. That's about it, some shells and proficiency and skill. That's what you need to bring with you. That's your primary accessory if you're a rifleman is your skill, your ability to read wind, to know drop, to know your weapon. Those paper targets, I'll tell you what they serve for me, to go out and zero that weapon out of range and then shoot it every 10 yards out to its maximum range, every 10 yards in from where it's zeroed and every 10 yards out uh, until I hit maximum range so that I know exactly how much drop that I have and what it looks like in the scope relative to the size of my target. So I don't just know that uh, it kind of looks like that on the reticle. If it's a squirrel and he's 75 yards, the crosshair should be about that high over his eyeball when I pull the trigger. And then the middle crosshair should be dead center on that eye. That's an accessory. Bipods have no place on a twenty-two. Now, with some exceptions, let's, I don't want to offend anybody that, that's got a special built weapon. I saw a guy one time, this guy was a prairie dog shooter. He had a Ruger 10-22 kitted up with a, I don't know where he got this scope, but it was metered for 22. If it was zeroed at 50 yards, it had little drops in the reticle all the way out to 300 yards. He had a bipod on it, and he would sit and he would shoot ground squirrels, and he said he liked it over using something like, um, a 222 or a 22250 or anything like this it was quiet. It was cheap, and you could shoot a bunch of squirrels. And if you were 150, 200 yards away, they didn't even know they were being shot at with the wind on the prairies and things. They didn't even hear the shots. And you would shoot, and you'd just see a little puff of dirt, and you could adjust. And this guy was wiping out ground squirrels at 150, 200 yards of the 22 because it's a little target. It doesn't need a lot of killing, and it was an advantage. So it was purpose built to that. Well, unless you're doing that. That's all nonsense. And, you know, that guy was a good shot, and he loved his rifle. But I guarantee you, if you took him into the East Pennsylvania woods to chase gray squirrels, he would not bring that rifle. It's not made for that. It's not what it's meant for. That was something special and enhanced. And you only do that if you have a purpose for it. In other words, only build a race car if you have a racetrack to run it on, because it's not going to be happy on the highway. Make sense? You know? The only reason to kit up your four-wheel drive, guys, and jack it up, put the big tires on it, is if you get off the pavement once in a while. It's not as well performing on the pavement. We know this when we jack up our trucks. We make them big. We know that if we lower it down and, and, and use street tires and all that good stuff, that we're going to have a much better passenger vehicle for our highway system. But we build it to get out in the dirt, to get out in the mud. Well, if you accessorize a rifle beyond the things I've talked about today, especially a twenty-two, then it better be accessorized for a special purpose. If it's that, it's fine. But you better have. You better have the basic rifle. Bolt action, twenty-two, four power scope, sling, binoculars. Spend most of your time with that. You'll master rifle craft. One last thought. Make sure you get kids involved in this stuff, and it's never hard to get a kid to want to shoot. Especially one of 22. It's why I like it. Low recoil. Okay. A low muzzle blast. It doesn't develop bad habits of flinching. But above all, 
most important fundamental I can give you, I've already done. And that is getting the form correct. Make sure that you're bringing the rifle to your line of sight. Go look at pictures of people shooting. Every time you see a head canted hard to the left or right, depending on what hand the shooter shoots with, and the head way down, wrong. I don't care if the guy can shoot world record groups, wrong. It's not how the rifle was designed. The rifle's been designed for centuries. It's designed to be shot a certain way. That is not the way. Last, last, last point, because i got to say this one before I go. I almost forgot about it. You need to determine your master eye. Um, this is the most important thing you can do, and you'll never be a good shot with a rifle if you don't do it. Your master eye is your dominant eye. And unfortunately, and it is kind of unfortunate for some people, that are right-handed, they're left-eye dominant, or they're left-handed and right-eye dominant. And what that means is they have to shoot with their weaker hand if they're going to shoot well. You will never shoot a rifle well with your weak eye. It's usually easy to see if a person is is cross-dominant. Uh, I don't know if that's an official term, it's what I call it. If you're cross-dominant, you'll always see the person bring the rifle up, they try to, like, if they're right-handed, they bring the rifle up, they try to get their left eye over the, the, the thing. And if, if a person that has any need for uh, eyeglasses or contact lenses or anything like that, usually there's such a difference in eye dominance that they know their dominant eye. But you guys that have perfect vision, you're the ones that never seem to know your dominant eye is because you can see pretty good out of both eyes. Well, the easy way to determine this, take your right hand, hold it arm's length away from your head, put your thumb up like your Fonzie back in the day giving the thumbs up, AA sign, right? Look about 20 yards past and pick something like a flower pot, a spot on the wall. Move your thumb to where you cover it up, where you don't see it well. Close one eye and see what happens. Close the other eye and see what happens. You'll close one of your two eyes. When you close one of your two eyes, you're gonna, it almost looks like your thumb jumps to the side. Whichever eye you close that makes that happen is your dominant eye. So if you close your right eye and your thumb jump, jumps, your right eye dominant. If you close your left eye and your thumb jumps, your left eye dominant. Whichever your dominant eye is, I'm sorry, that's how you need to learn to shoot. And you may not like it at first, but as soon as you start doing it and start working on your form and start shooting with your proper eye, all of the frustrations that you've had up till now, if you've been a shooter, will go away. And everything will start to make sense. And you'll understand why things have been so difficult for you. You'll understand why you've had so much trouble acquiring a target rapidly and quickly. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. For more stuff like this, get Mastering the 22 Rifle when it becomes available. It is uh, available right now uh, for not really pre-order, but pre-registration, so to speak, at a little website I put here, just one page called MasterRifleman.com. Uh, go there and click like you're going to purchase it. You'll get a form. Fill that out. And when it does become available, I will release it to you um, with a 20% discount. And if you're an MSB member, hold off when I send that email. Um, I'll, I'll make sure I remind you in that email because I'm going to give MSB members at least a 50% discount on this ebook, and I think it's going to sell somewhere around the twenty dollars price point. It is an ebook. Why am I doing an ebook? Why an electronic book? You know, a PDF, a download. Why not print it? Uh, there's going to be over a hundred full color photographs in it. It would be a hundred plus dollar book if I printed it, just due to printing costs. It's very expensive to print full color photos, glossy that type of thing. And I think you need the photos to really understand some of the things that I've said today and, and some of the much deeper things that I say in the book. I'm actually at a conundrum right now. If I release the book um, as a technical book, 
all the drills, all the forms, all the shooting, all the, uh, the why to choose certain accessories, why to choose certain actions, I can release that book by the end of the month. If I include in the book uh, how to find game, uh, how to still hunt, how to stalk, what the difference between still hunting and stalking is, how to sit, things that you need to do, uh, what game to go after, it's probably going to be February. So here's what I'm thinking about doing it. Send me an email with your thoughts on this. I want emails on this only. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. This is what I'm thinking about doing. Going ahead and releasing the book. Letting the guys that want the book, gals that want the book, buy it. And coming out with a second edition later that adds these things in. It'll take about another 15, 20 days to add the second edition uh, in. But if you've already purchased it, you get the second edition free. Like a, like software. Like, you know, you buy version 1 of a software and you've paid for it. And version 2 comes out and they just let you upgrade it for free. Um, good software companies do that anyway. Um that's what I'm thinking about doing with that. So let me know if you want me to do that. That'll get the book out there faster. Check out the site today. With that, this is I hope it wasn't an infomercial just a little bit there at the end because um, I really wanted today to be more about just Riflecraft and understanding Riflecraft, where it fits in America, what's been lost. Folks, this stuff has been lost. When I was a kid running around Pennsylvania, I didn't know I was the last generation and, and it, that it was already gone in so many places. I had no idea. I would put my rifle on my shoulder with its sling, and I'd throw a couple uh, boxes of Remington Thunderbolts in my in my pocket, and I was 14 years old. And I'd start walking down our little road, and there was two roads in town, a low road and a high road. And I lived on a low road. And I'd cut from this little path that went behind one of the neighbor's houses that went over the high road, cross over the high road, go up Pine Hill Mountain, and I would shoot all day long. I'd either hunt or I'd target practice. Sometimes I'd just take a walk. And just take the gun with me when I took a walk. And I might take a five or six mile walk. And I might not fire it. But it was there if I needed it. I did that all the time. And if a neighbor saw me, they would wave. Sometimes a neighbor would like do like the come here sign because there was a groundhog or some other varmint they were dealing with and they wanted it dead. And that young spiritual boy will shoot it for you. Even there, you send a kid walking down that road with a twenty two down, I bet you somebody calls the police. And that's why this is being lost. Because that freedom is gone. But we can recapture it. If we make a mental focus to recapturing it. If we decide that this knowledge is too precious to lose, that it must be preserved and it must be passed on, and fathers need to teach it to their children. Fathers need to stop teaching their children how to shoot a deer at 100 yards from a box blind. At least not just that. Teach them how to hit a golf ball at 25 yards with iron sights. That's what the American rifleman is capable of. When you decide that you can't do that, you're short-selling yourself, you're short-selling the capabilities that we have here. The rifle is part of America. I want it to stay part of America. The more people that own, responsibly shoot, responsibly hunt with, that safely use rifles, Shotguns, pistols, handguns, all of it, the more that do that, the harder it will ever be for those sons of bitches to take it away from us. And there's people that want to do it. Make no mistake about it. And it's not new. The NRA is over 100 years old for a reason. The Second Amendment has been attempted to be stripped from the Constitution or dumbed down to not mean what it says almost since the day that it was written. This is something we have to understand about the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution. And I'm going to fill up, fill, you know, finish off with some constitutionality here on this, but it's important that we understand it. There were a lot of people 
that were founders of our country that did not want a Bill of Rights. They didn't want ten amendments to the Constitution. They didn't want to write into the Constitution that you have a right against illegal search and seizure. They didn't want to write into the Constitution that you had a right to keep and bear arms. They didn't want to write into the Constitution that you had a right to free speech. They didn't write, want to write separation of church and state into the Constitution, saying the state could not interfere with the with the uh, the actions of the church, and the church could not interfere with the actions of the state. They didn't want to do any of that. Do you know why? Because they believed that it wasn't at risk. They believed that everybody already understood that. They believed that if they wrote those ten amendments and they left something out, that later on people would look at it and go, Ah, it's not in there. That means that the government can do it. These are the negative liberties that people like Barack Obama talk about. I'm real happy that they're negative liberties. I'm real happy at limiting my government. I want my government as limited as possible. I want as much self-governance in my life as possible. Why did those ten things end up in there? Because they were already threatened. The ten that got written were the ones that our founders looked at and said, You know what? They might take this away. There's already people talking about taking this away. We've got to do this. And that side of the argument won because eventually the other side capitulated and realized that these intrinsic rights were already being threatened so early in the forming of a new nation. And they said, we must protect these things. I only wish they had a little bit more forethought so that they could have included a few other things. But the reality is, that Constitution and that Bill of Rights says everything it needs to say. We've just turned our backs on it. If we lose one right in our Constitution, we set what's called precedent. And that sets up the ability to lose all of them. The Second Amendment is is important. It's as important as the other nine. It might be the most important, because it allows the people to enforce the other nine. Not even in a revolutionary standpoint. But when you disarm a population, you make it helpless. When you make a population helpless, they need the government. When they need the government, they will allow the government to do things that they should not. When they do not need government, they will stand firm and say no. To hither thou shalt come and no further. This is your world. This is mine. Stay out of mine. This is your responsibility. This is your duty as our government. Do not exceed it. We don't want it. That's what the Second Amendment defends. That's what it protects. And it is one of the most important facets of the American history that we all study and are supposedly supposed to learn today. And it is one of the most important things that preserves the freedom that we have left. If you want to defend it, it's great to join groups like the NRA. It's great to vote your conscience on that. But what's more important is that you own, responsibly use, and teach others to become a master with a weapon. Masters of weapons are safe with weapons. They're proficient with weapons. And they demonstrate what that means by their example, the confidence, and the way they live. And they spread the message just like everything else that we talk about here at the Survival Podcast. You want to spread the message of self-sufficiency by growing your own food? Plant some food. You want to spread the message of the importance and what it means to be proficient as an American rifleman to become an American rifleman. And with that, this is Jack Spierko, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 
you can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent 